This is our fourth week on the charismatic movement, and we've really just spent the first well, three weeks uh, nailing down that, uh, that the only proper way to understand and experience and worship God is through what He reveals in the Bible, not by way of our personal subjective experiences. And we can be uh, totally convinced that we have visions and dreams and prophecies and messages from God, uh, visits to hell or to heaven, talks with angels. We can be totally convinced of that stuff, yet we know that Satan can counterfeit these things. We also know that the apostles did have certain kinds of experiences like this, and yet they all said that the Scripture is greater. The Bible often tells us to avoid these things and to beware of these things. The Bible never tells us to pursue those things outside of Scripture. And even when we're convinced all of it was real, the Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitful and that the canon of Scripture is closed that the Word of God is complete. So any practice of saying that God spoke in some way, in addition to Scripture, which is not an application of Scripture, but is a new revelation, a new teaching, a new, uh, new message, a new theology, any, any manner of, of speaking that God has given some kind of new truth is satanic. It doesn't honor God, it blasphemes Him. It says that he spoke something that he didn't. The most grievous sin of the charismatic movement, which not all charismatic churches do, but when we go into the corners of the charismatic movement, when you push out farther into, deeper into the erroneous teaching, the most grievous sin is not their theology on prophecy, tongues, miracles, or healings. It is the manner in which they misrepresent the Holy Spirit. Not much is said by them, by, by the charismatic movement, about who the Holy Spirit is, but a lot is said by the charismatic movement about what the Holy Spirit does. And if you're wrong about what He does, you can certainly see how that leads to misunderstanding who He is. It's very hard to separate who someone is and what they do. If, for instance, you, uh, you name something that you are by way of, let's say, your profession, you say, I am a teacher, then people know you teach. If, uh, if you say that I am, a, I am a chef, they know you cook. If they know something about what you are, they know something about what you do. So if you get wrong what someone does, you get wrong who someone is. Now, this is bigger than just having a different theology about... Uh, about when to baptize someone, you know, do you baptize a child or uh, can you, uh, do you wait until they're an adult? Like, th th that's a, a, an issue that the church will disagree on sometimes, and, uh, and we don't need to, like, get crazy on that. Some people uh, will have major uh, different theology, differing perspectives on the issues of free will versus predestination. And even then, we still embrace that, uh, that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, and as much as, as, uh, as we might disagree on stuff, it's still a very in-house issue. That's a, 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 that's a discussion among brothers and sisters. In uh, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, or in Romans chapter 14 and 15, we get these exhortations not to exclude people who have different practices. For instance, don't exclude people who practice the Sabbath, 
Or don't exclude people who practice the dietary laws, the kosher diet. We're told not to stumble them nor condemn them, but to accommodate them even though their understanding is weaker. But this is not that. The charismatic movement is not in that category. When the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians and the Romans to accommodate such people, it's because the church was just being formed. It was right there. It was only a few years old, right? Judaism was still adjusting. Jews felt like they grew up observing Sabbath, observing kosher diets, and they were told that this is what Scripture says. This was their way of obeying what God had written. And so to tell them it all changed now, Jesus has put an end to the animal sacrifices and the whole old covenant and the law. That's all fulfilled in him. We don't, we're, we're not under the law anymore. We're free from the law. To say that to a Jew was extremely jarring. They grew up being told that God told them in the scripture to keep those laws or else they're exiled or even at times executed. So the Jews still believed when they followed the, the Sabbath or, or the dietary laws, they believed that they were following Scripture. They didn't know they were free from the law. They didn't quite get it yet. It took some time for that teaching to set in. The New Testament authors have to teach them about that in Romans 6 and 7 and 10, Colossians 2, Hebrews 10, Galatians 3 and 4, Philippians 3. They have to teach them that we're free from the law. But the charismatic movement is not teaching practices from Scripture. It's teaching practices outside of and against Scripture. It is not an old way of doing things that God had prescribed. It is unauthorized worship. It is unacceptable worship. So don't think that we're to accommodate false teaching or false practices or heresy or blasphemy, and to allow that to attach to the gospel and then bring in some leaven to leaven the whole lump. The Holy Spirit is God. This is an issue of who you say God is and what you say God does. To get this wrong is blasphemy. In Matthew 9 and 26, Mark 2 and 14, John 10, in, in those passages, Jesus claims to be God. He makes some kind of a claim to be God. And because he made a claim about who God is, namely, he says, I, you know, he, he basically says, I am God. He, that's how he equates himself. Because he makes a claim about who God is, the Jews go, that's blasphemy because they didn't believe him. Consider then what the charismatic movement attributes to the Holy Spirit. Think about these things, okay? Think about the things that we've already mentioned. Being slain in the Spirit, laughing in the Spirit, barking in the Spirit, vomiting in the Spirit. Just tag anything within the Spirit. Just throw that in there. And it's always something that makes you kind of act out of control, how much of that is in the Bible? None. How much of it is glorifying to God? None. How much of it is dangerous, sinful, and blasphemous? All of it. To say God does something that God doesn't do is blasphemy. That is connected right there into the word blasphemy. It's not just saying something bad about God. It is to misrepresent Him. 
to convey that God is someone he is not. That is blasphemy. Now, the big engine behind it is that the, the, the charismatic movement will say that God spoke to them, that God gave them a message, God spoke to them. They say their prophecies are from the Holy Spirit. Well, God told Israel in the Old Testament how to deal with this, okay? Blasphemy was a capital crime punishable by death. Let me show you a few passages on this. Leviticus 24, verse 16, it says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. So this was a capital crime and is punished by capital punishment. God prescribed it. That's how it was done. Now, even though God only gave that law to Israel back in that day under the old covenant in the theocratic government that it was under, and it didn't apply to any other nations, even though it doesn't apply to the United States today, that law doesn't apply to the United States today, you can at least see that this was a big deal to God. That if he were to run a nation his way, even though he gives us so much freedom on Uh, on how we want to serve with our gifts or who we want to invest in in relationship and so much freedom and so many different things that we do. You know, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink in word or deed, whatever you do to do for the glory of God, we have so much freedom in all that. And yet he is extremely specific about revealing who he is and how he is to be worshiped, what he does, what he gets credit for, and what you are not to apply to him. One of the types of blasphemy was performing unacceptable worship, meaning worship that was outside of what God commanded. Let me show you Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 27. It says, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, In this also your fathers blasphemed me. How did they blaspheme? Well, it says in verse 28, Wherever they saw any high hill or any leafy tree, there they offered their sacrifices, and there they presented the provocation of their offering. There they sent up their pleasing aromas, and there they poured out their drink offerings. Now, what was the sin here? They presented offerings, pleasing aromas, drink offerings. All of that stuff was commanded. Uh, You can find it right there in Leviticus 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. You you see all these, these different kinds of offerings. But what was wrong with it? They did it at the high hills and the leafy trees. God commanded Israel uh, to offer their sacrifices at the tabernacle and later at the temple once the tabernacle permanently moved into the temple. But there was a specific location where God said, this is where you are to bring your sacrifices. And yet, the high hills, the leafy trees... These are very beautiful places, very spiritual, very mystical. All the nations of the world would use such places for their places of worship. And you can understand, right? You've gone on a, on a retreat before if you've grown up in the church. You've gone on a retreat, you've gone out to the mountains, and you just you feel closer to God, right? You're out there, you're in the mountains, you're in the forest, you're at the beach. Just anywhere where you're in nature feels like you not just connect with the natural, but the supernatural, You feel closer to God, it can feel easier to sing, to pray, to read the word, to cry out. The Jews worshipped in these places. It felt right. It felt close to God. It felt intimate. It felt supernatural. And it was blasphemy. Because God said, don't do that. 
to the Jews. He said, when you offer your sacrifices, you do it at the tabernacle. That doesn't apply to us today. In John chapter 4, Jesus says, you know, people will worship either at Jerusalem, Mount Gerizim, it doesn't matter anymore. They'll worship in spirit and truth. They'll worship with their hearts and they'll worship accurately according to how God said. And in the same way, another type of blasphemy was to say that God said something that he didn't say. When you say, God told me this, but he didn't tell you that, if you say, God told me this, and if he didn't tell you that, that's blasphemy. If you say, this is a prophecy, this is what God said to me, if God didn't explicitly say it, you misrepresent God. It's falsely claiming what God did. It's falsely claiming who God is. And it was punished as blasphemy. Let me show you Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the... Uh, the word that Yahweh has not spoken. Well, verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that word that Yahweh has not spoken, that is the, a word that Yahweh has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you need not be afraid of him. And that prophet was put to death. Because it mattered that much to God that if someone misrepresents him and says, God said this when he didn't say it, he says, put him to death. I will not allow that. How do you know? How do you know a prophecy is from God? Well, what God kind of indicates here is that a prophecy from God is always provable. It is always provable. If it doesn't come to pass, if it doesn't come true, that is a word that Yahweh has not spoken. Which means that the person who claims that this is a prophecy or a message from God is either a liar or has no idea how to distinguish prophecy from his or her own emotions and impulses and urges and feelings. But to tell people that God has said something that he didn't say was blasphemous and it was punished with death. It was that big of a deal. Now, praise God that we don't execute such people today because, to be frankly honest, I used to do all that stuff, all of it. I told you, I was saved at a charismatic church. I was taught by charismatic pastors. I was raised in charismatic traditions. I was. And it wasn't until I started studying the Bible that I started to uh, be able to sort some of this stuff out and to see how much in Scripture it talks about how this offends God. God revealed himself in his word. We, we won't fashion our own idea of him. And we won't invent new ways in which he works. We won't make claims that he doesn't make about himself, whether about the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. So, that was the introduction. Today, we'll focus on getting a right understanding of God, namely the Holy Spirit. To know him for who he really is and what he really does. Now, uh, the best way of doing that is to actually go through this other sermon series called the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's very clear, right? Uh, we have a, a, a series called the Holy Spirit. Today, though, I don't want to like assign you homework. I, I often do, but right now I don't want to. Today, we'll just do this single-stop crash course 
on the Holy Spirit so we don't get enticed by or we don't perpetuate blasphemy against God, against the Holy Spirit. We want to know Him for who He really is, what He really does, so that it will inform and fuel and empower our worship. So we're going to take it in, uh, in three movements. Sorry, four movements. Um, the first is who the Holy Spirit is. And then second is what the Holy Spirit does. And both of those will be uh, kind of nerdy. So just right, mentally prepared for just a lot of info coming at you real fast. And then we're going to slow it down real fast and we'll, uh, to Romans 8, which is the chapter about the Holy Spirit. It's the best chapter in the Bible, the, the one that has the most concentrated information about the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to take a look specifically at, uh, at a part of that chapter. And then finally, we'll talk about how to follow the Holy Spirit's leading, how to follow the Holy Spirit. Right? Okay, let's start with who the Holy Spirit is. Right? Put your nerd caps on. Here we go. Uh, I'm going to name a lot of passages. Um, we're not going to put them up on the board. That's just so that we can get through this. The Holy Spirit series that we have, the sermon series, that'll have all the info you need. Okay? All right, here we go. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not an energy. The Holy Spirit is not a mood. The Holy Spirit is a person. Right? Uh, the Holy Spirit is not, a, pers- uh, is not a, a human person, but the Holy Spirit is a personal being. Every pronoun used in the Bible in reference to the Holy Spirit is he, not it. It's more noticeable in the Greek, spirit, the, you know, Holy Spirit. Spirit is, is uh, neuter in terms of its gender, but the Holy Spirit takes a masculine pronoun, he, him. You find that in like John 15, John 16, he is a he. Uh, the Holy Spirit can be grieved, can be sinned against, can be lied to. That's in Isaiah 63, uh, Ephesians 4, Acts 5. We're to obey Him and honor Him. That's in Acts 10, Psalm 51. He gives commands. He has a will. He's omniscient. He's eternal. That's Acts 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, and Hebrews 9. He's omnipresent, Psalm 139. He's holy. It's in the name, Holy Spirit. But only God is omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, and holy. So when you kind of start adding up his attributes, you go, wait a minute. There's something suspiciously similar between the Holy Spirit and all the descriptions about God because the Holy Spirit is God. It's no wonder then that he shares a name with the Father, who is God, and the Son, Jesus, who is God. They're all separate personal beings, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but each one is fully God. Each one is not a third of God. Each one is fully God. How does that work? I don't know. Matthew 28, 19. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, one name, singular, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They share the same name. There's a oneness to God in this. The Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Christ in Matthew 3, 2 Corinthians 3, 1 Peter 1. In Acts chapter 5 and in 2 Corinthians 3, the Holy Spirit is actually referred to as God. So we're to know who He is. He is God. And if He's God, we are to worship Him. And we are to obey Him. 
The Holy Spirit has a lot of different roles, and we don't have time to cover all of them. Uh, so I'm just going to name them off real fast. You can go into the sermon series if you're, if you're curious, okay? Uh, the Holy Spirit, he's the author of the Bible. He's our comforter or counselor or advocate or paraclete, if you want the weird word. Uh, he's the convictor of our hearts. He's the creator of the world alongside the Father and the Son. He's the empowerer to do God's will. He's the guide to truth. He's the indweller of believers. He's the intercessor on our behalf. He's the life giver for salvation. He's the revealer of scripture. He's our seal or our deposit or our guarantee to ensure that our salvation can never be lost or taken away or given up. He's the witness for Jesus and for the apostles and for us to identify us as belonging to God. And these are all titles of the Holy Spirit. If you keep these in mind, you'll have the right idea of who he is. But it's really easy to take, uh, to take some of these and twist them into things that they aren't meant to mean. Let me give you two examples, okay? Uh, you can say that the Holy Spirit indwells and empowers and reveals truth. You can say that, right? Because that's true. Those are, those are descriptions in Scripture about him. But you can take that and then you can go, well, see, God, uh, the Spirit indwells me and empowers me, reveals truth to me, so I have direct messages from heaven in my head, new truths. And now you've taken it in a direction that the Holy Spirit doesn't say will happen. You can say, he taught you things that no one else has taught you before. And yet he has never promised to do that for us. Quite the opposite. These are the ways that heresies come up. Just so you know, every false religion that says that it's based on the Bible is based on the Bible plus something else. Right? Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, just every, every false religion that says that it's based on the Bible has added something else as a source of divine authority, and that's where you break the gospel and you, you move into a heresy. That's how heresies come up. The moment you say that the Holy Spirit is revealing to you truths and messages and teachings that aren't in the Bible, now you're really in damning territory. Well, let's talk about what the Holy Spirit does. For starters, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. Baptizes us into the body of Christ. Okay? What that means is the Holy Spirit, as soon as you become a believer, he takes you and he places you into spiritual union with Jesus and with other believers. In some way, he has joined you so that you belong to Jesus and to all other believers. Baptism just means immerse, to dunk, to submerge. We are baptized with the Holy Spirit and we're baptized into the body of Jesus. Mark 1 and Acts 1, there are claims by John the Baptist and by Jesus that say, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that, that was uh, them saying that the church would then be dunked in the Holy Spirit, immersed in the Holy Spirit. And then, what does that do? Well, that means that the Holy Spirit takes you and immerses you into Jesus and with one another. It's, it's, a, it's a strange uh, relationship. The church gets baptized into the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit baptizes the church into Jesus. Let, let me show you 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. It says, For in one spirit, or by one spirit, we were all baptized into one 
body. And this same chapter, when you, when you chase it down a little bit later, will say that, uh, that we're all part of the one body, the body of Christ, but we all have different spiritual gifts. We'll be different from one another. We won't be identical. We'll all belong to the body of Christ, but we'll all be a little bit different. There will be variety. So verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, it says, Now you, meaning believers, you are the body of Christ and individually you're members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And if you notice, those are different types of people. And then watch. Then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? The natural response is no. Are all prophets? The natural response is no. Are all teachers? The natural response is no. Are, uh, do all work miracles? The natural response is no. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The natural response is no. His point is, you're individually members, everybody has different gifts, but we all belong together. That's kind of the argument of the whole chapter. He's like, some of you are part of the body where you're like an eyeball or an ear or a hand or a foot. We all need each other. We're very different, but we all belong together. Every Christian is baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, but not all Christians have the same gifts. And I'm targeting this because not all Christians, for instance, speak in tongues. I point this out because the first thing we have to do is throw away the idea that is pushed by the charismatic movement that says that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. Because baptism of the Holy Spirit is for all Christians, every believer. It's not some next-level spiritual experience. Every believer gets baptized by the Holy Spirit. Not every believer speaks in tongues. That's what we got to differentiate. Anyone who says that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the same thing as speaking in tongues, you know, one begets the other, either the baptism of the Holy Spirit makes you speak in tongues or speaking in tongues is how you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, whichever. But the moment they say that they're the same thing, everyone who is baptized by the Holy Spirit speaks in tongues, you start moving into a very, very dangerous field of heresy where you start saying things about who's saved and who's not saved, who's baptized by the Holy Spirit and who's not, based on the evidence of speaking in tongues. That is not at all how the Bible tells us how to know someone's a Christian. How do you know someone's a Christian? Is it by them speaking in tongues? You see them speak in tongues and you go, ah, oh, they're clearly baptized by the Holy Spirit. That means they're saved. That is not at all the argument of Scripture. Uh, scripture tells us a, a whole bunch of other stuff. For instance, believe in Jesus. That's John 3.36. Believe God's Word. That's John 5.24. Love one another. That's John 13.35. Bear the fruit of obedience. John 15, verse 8. Obey God's commands. That's 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. And chapter 3, verses 10 and 24. Listen to the apostles, meaning listen uh, like obey the scriptures and believe in the scriptures. That's 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. And all the verses that I just named right now, all of those say this is how you know that you belong to Jesus. This is how you know that God abides in you. This is how you know that you're saved. This is how you know you're a Christian. Speaking in tongues is never named in that. If you want to know what the Holy Spirit does, just look at the person who was most filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus. You know that Jesus, when he became flesh, 
and, you know, and took on human form, when he did that, he gave up the independent use of his divine abilities and privileges. His godness, he gave up. He didn't uh, consider equality with God something to be held on to, something to be grasped, right? Philippians 2. So he gave that up, and then he took on flesh, he became a human being, and he yielded himself to the Holy Spirit. So he operated, everything he did, he, he operated by the power of the Holy Spirit, not, not by him just being awesomely divine. If we look at how the Holy Spirit worked in Jesus' life, you get a very good model of how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. So, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Luke chapter 1, right? So the, the Spirit gave him life. And if you find out uh, later on down the line, it is the Holy Spirit who gives us life. You must be born of the Spirit, John chapter 3 and Titus 3. Jesus was matured by the Holy Spirit, Luke chapter 1 and 2. And it's the Holy Spirit who grants us power to grow and bear fruit, to mature. That's Galatians 5. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism, Mark chapter 1. And we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. Jesus was sustained by the Holy Spirit during temptations, Luke chapter 4. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, strengthens us inside during our temptations, Galatians chapter 5. Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit in his ministry, that's Matthew 12, Luke 4, Acts 1. And the Holy Spirit empowers and gives us giftedness for ministry, 1 Corinthians 12. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke chapter 4. We can be filled with the Spirit, Acts chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus was perfected by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience, Luke chapter 4. And the Holy Spirit does the same thing in us, Romans chapter 8. Jesus faced death triumphantly with courage because of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 9. And it's the Holy Spirit who sustains us in our suffering. Romans 8, Ephesians 3. Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 1. And it is the Holy Spirit who raises us up with him as well. Romans chapter 8. Jesus was in cooperation with the, the Holy Spirit more than anyone else ever was before. And that is the model for us. So let me, let me zoom in on Romans chapter 8. This is the chapter about the Holy Spirit, right? This is the, the best chapter to go to. It's the most concentrated amount of information, uh, the most dedicated attention to the Holy Spirit. There's a lot said about the Holy Spirit throughout this chapter, but we're just going to look starting in verse 26, okay? If you've got your Bibles, Romans chapter 8, verse 26. It says, likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Stop there for a sec. It comes down to verse 26. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And he does this, first of all, by praying for us, interceding for us, right? He is an intercessor as Christ is an intercessor for us. And he always intercedes according to the will of God because he knows the will of God. And as a result, 
the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit works in us, and that means that everything works together for our eternal good. Everything works together for our eternal good. This verse gets thrown around a lot. It's a very memorable verse. It's a very powerful verse. And a lot of times, it's used to just say, when something bad happens to you, uh, well, you just don't realize it, but it's actually something good. Because God works everything for the good of those who believe. And it, 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 it kind of gets uh, thrown out like this, this cheap way of saying, like, you shouldn't feel bad. But that's really not what the verse is for. That's not, that's not exactly how, uh, how it's talking. It's not to say that bad things are good. And, like, take it to an extreme. If someone were to attack and assault your child, you wouldn't say, well, this is good. You'd say, this is bad, and this is what God is putting an end to. It will not happen in heaven. There are bad things that happen to us. Poverty and starvation, disease, these, these things are bad. But God works everything together for, for our eternal good. He, he works all of creation together. The, the whole chapter is t- uh, talking about how creation too longs to be restored. And God's working that together for our good. But what do we mean by good? Okay, when, when we say like God's working all this stuff for our good, does that mean that, oh, something bad happened? But now we can help other people who have gone through the same thing. Yeah, you, that, that's something like that. Sure, if I've gone through a season where uh, I was very unemployed, depressed, and, and financially struggling, then yeah, I can help someone else who's going through that. Yes, but that's not the point of why we went through that season. Right? That's not for our eternal good. That's, that's for a moment where we can be helpful to someone, yes. But for our eternal good is to know that God is our provider, that this isn't the only life we have, that we're going to be in a place where there is no sickness and death, no hunger, no starvation, none of that stuff. There's something going on for our eternal good. So when we talk about uh, you know, what it means to, uh, for God to work everything for our eternal good, watch this, because the next verse tells us. It says in verse 29, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Hear that again, okay? Those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this is the ultimate work of the Holy Spirit, namely, to conform us to the image of Christ. That is what he is doing. That no matter what happens to you, he is forming you to be like Christ. He can work even the the terrible, tragic moments of your life, which won't happen in heaven, the bad things in your life, he can use that to help you become more like Christ. Everything we go through as believers, whether it was pleasant or tragic, can still be a part of what makes us more like Jesus. It doesn't mean that only good things will happen to you, and it doesn't mean that the bad things that happen, the terrible, traumatic things that, you, that happen to you are actually good. They're bad. But the Holy Spirit doesn't see that as like, well, there's nothing we can do about it. He can take the bad, and even through that, he can do something in you. What's bad was still bad, but he can bring something good out of it. 
No matter what you go through, all of it can be part of forming you to become more like Christ. The Holy Spirit does His work in us so that everything works together toward that one ultimate goal, to make us like Jesus. So that He then becomes the preeminent one among, uh, among many who share His likeness. He's, he's the, the prime example, and we are all like him. This is what uh, the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians 3. You know, he's like, I press on toward the goal, specifically to be like Jesus, to be like him in his suffering, to be like him in his righteousness, to have his righteousness, not my own. This is what the Apostle John promises in 1 John 3. He says, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Until then, when we're glorified and made like Christ, the Holy Spirit starts that process in our character right now. Like, it'll be completely finished and really brought to, to maturity on the day that we, you know, come back with Jesus. When we're in heaven, you know, after you die, you're in heaven, you're perfected, and then you get brought down, you, you're given your glorified body, great. But the process starts now for every believer. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit, and He indwells you. And then he starts to move things around. And for the rest of your life, he's moving stuff around. And he's conforming you to the image of Christ. Now, how, how exactly did the Holy Spirit work in Jesus? Well, he didn't knock him down. He didn't make him laugh uncontrollably. He didn't make him convulse or vomit or bark or babble. Can you name a single moment in the Bible where the Holy Spirit overtook Jesus such that Jesus started doing something that he had no control over? Is there even a moment in the Bible where Jesus is mentioned speaking in tongues? There's not. Never happened, not a single verse. Don't ever say that's what the Holy Spirit does to us because that's not how he worked in Jesus. Really, if you look at how the Spirit worked in Jesus, that's enough to, express, to expose how off-track the charismatic movement is. Now, I'm going to step aside for a second here, and I'm just going to say something at this point, okay? By now, in this series, many of you have gotten the impression that maybe I'm something called a cessationist, where I think there's, uh, that nobody has the, the ability to speak in tongues or something. That's not a real thing. Uh, spoiler alert, I am not a cessationist. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> but Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. It never looked anything like the charismatic movement claims that it does to you. The Holy Spirit worked in Jesus to bring about holiness and effectiveness to bless others in ministry. That's what the Holy Spirit, Spirit did in Jesus. He brought about holiness and effectiveness to bless others. And that's what the Holy Spirit will do in us, to bring about holiness in us, and effectiveness to bless others. That's where He leads us. That's where He's taking us. Where, where does the Holy Spirit lead? To become like Jesus. That's where we're going, because that's where He leads. So then... How do you follow the Holy Spirit's leading? How do you follow the Holy Spirit's leading? If the Holy Spirit wants to make us more like Jesus, wants to make us holy and effective to bless others, how do we follow? And it's, you know, it's really not very surprising 
uh, how Scripture says the Spirit leads. I've collected the passages. I've sequenced them for you. I'll just give you seven things. And they kind of go in this order. First, fill your mind with Scripture. That's the first step, the basics of following the Holy Spirit, okay? Fill your mind with Scripture. Look at John chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay? So, Jesus is speaking to the apostles, and he's saying that the Holy Spirit will help the apostles remember everything that Jesus taught them so that they'll write it down. That becomes the New Testament. We should expect the same, right? Jesus said the Holy Spirit would help the apostles remember everything that would become the New Testament. The Holy Spirit will do the same for us. It'll, he'll help us remember everything that constitutes the New Testament and the Old Testament, because that's also the Word of Christ. To remember Scripture, to bring it to mind. So the more familiar you are with Scripture, the more familiar you are with the Word of Christ, the greater that arsenal that the Holy Spirit has to lead you with, right? If he brings to mind Scripture, then you have to get Scripture in, in, into your mind, and then he'll, he'll have you remember it. But first, you've got to fill your mind with Scripture. You've got to let, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Second, pray about the Scripture. Pray about the Scripture. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. It says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Or the message of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So the Holy Spirit is directly connected to not just the Word of God, but also to prayer. Because that should be the natural response to the Word of God. You fill your mind with the Word of God, but it's not just a mental thing. You must pray. You must put your spirit into action, your soul into action. That keeps us humble and repentant. That keeps us dependent on God's strength, and that keeps us submissive to God's will. We pray it out. We don't just fill our heads with theology and then become uh, argumentative and, and conceited in, in just trying to, to get into debates with people and, and show how much we know. That will not do. It must provoke holiness in your life. It must provoke godly urges, righteous character. And that only comes about by prayer. Third, listen to your conscience. Listen to your conscience. Look at Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And then John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus says that the, he, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Do you see how the Holy Spirit is involved with your conscience as, and is involved with convicting people about sin, about what's wrong, about righteousness, about what's right, and about judgment, about how all of that is going to end up. The Holy Spirit can use your conscience to warn of sin. He does that for believers, and he, he even does that for unbelievers. This is one of the ways that the Holy Spirit actually interacts with unbelievers to bring them and invite them to repentance and saving faith. And just so you know, your conscience can be 
you can sear your conscience. It can be wrong. It can be desensitized. So don't go by that alone. Don't skip the scripture thing and the prayer thing and just go by conscience all the time. Don't think that your moral compass is automatically the, the end-all uh, rule of faith. That's not a good practice. But have it informed by scripture and have it strengthened by faith and then listen to your conscience. Fourth, don't ignore or defy a desire to do something that is God-honoring, but instead obey Him, right? Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. It says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 says, don't quench the Spirit. Acts chapter 7, verse 51, uh, this guy says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, right? If there is something in you that says, I ought to repent, or I ought to do good, I ought to serve, I ought to be faithful, I ought to love, I ought to uh, reconcile, etc. Do not resist the Holy Spirit. If you resist the Holy Spirit, you resist bearing the fruit of the Spirit that He wants to produce in your life. Fifth, keep a sober mind so you don't miss Sensing the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. It says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And this isn't just a, a remark about drunkenness, okay? Drunkenness is one of many examples that can be used here. You could switch it out for really anything that we seek instead of holiness. Uh, it's addiction to pleasure rather than committed to holiness, Right? Don't be, don't be uh, addicted to this other thing or per pursuing this other thing under the mastery of this other thing, but be filled with the Spirit. That should be your master. When you're filled with something, that means that you're living in such a way that you are, are uh, described by it. When you're filled with rage, you're living in a way that you, you are described by rage. That is what you are. When you're filled with greed, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that means that He is what's operating your motives. Sixth, the result should be godly character and conduct. You should make sure that whatever it is that you think the Holy Spirit is leading you into will result in godly character and conduct. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And that's not even an exhaustive list, by the way. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can add other things that are Christ-like, things that are like Jesus, such as humility, thankfulness, hopefulness. Hopefulness not in, in this life, but hopefulness about where everything's going for eternity. That's what results from following the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Not falling down uncontrollably, laughing uncontrollably, convulsing uncontrollably, vomiting uncontrollably, barking uncontrollably. Self-control. Seventh, 
to follow the Holy Spirit's lead. Uh, much like physical exercise, do this for the rest of your life. Every day. Do this every day. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Like, keep, just keep it up. Keep it up. I, I don't think I need to prove to you that Scripture and prayer and conscience and obedience and sobriety and fruitfulness are to be done regularly, right? Don't think that because you did this one big spiritual thing for God, you can take it easy for a month or two. That's, that would be foolishness in really kind of any other realm. For instance, uh, if I eat a salad for lunch then I don't go, well, I ate a salad so I can eat fast food for the rest of the week. Like that's, that's not going to do it. It's just not going to do it. Following the Holy Spirit's leading has to be the new life that every Christian takes on. It is a lifestyle. It's not a moment. It's not an achievement. It's not some, some incident. It's not an action that you pull off or perform. It is, it is a way that you live. Now, I want to address this, this question, though, about how to follow the Holy Spirit's lead, okay? Uh, is the believer supposed to be able to feel something? Is, uh, is the Holy uh, sorry, is the believer supposed to be able to feel the Holy Spirit? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Your emotions are not the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit does affect your emotions. You can separate that, right? Much like we are not saved by good works, but when you're saved, it produces good works, right? Okay, your emotions are not the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit does affect your emotions. Look, when you are convicted of sin, you feel it. When you're given comfort or peace during extreme difficulty, but when that comfort or peace comes because of the truth that you know is in God's word, you feel it. That's right there in Philippians 4. Right? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You'll feel it. When you truly worship God, when you worship God properly, then you do it with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You do it with every faculty that you have. Right? You do it physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. But that means that, yes, when you worship God, you worship Him emotionally. And you can express that physically. You're informed and you reflect on that mentally. And you make decisions. And you resolve yourself spiritually. 
So yeah, if you want to worship God and lift your hands physically because it's something you're feeling emotionally, absolutely do it. If you want to cry because you're brought to tears by the truth of God's word, yes, do it emotionally. If you want to dance, if you want to dance even, not in a distracting way when you're in a group, but if you want to dance, you can dance. Even if you want to wave those flags around. You know what I'm saying? The flag, okay, not the flags where, like, where you start saying, like, you know, when the flag touches you, the Holy Spirit blesses you. No, right? But if you want to just take flags and do, like, spiritual nunchucks with them, do it. Right? You can do it. There's nothing wrong with that. If you want to express yourself to God that way, if you want to just love the Lord, be affectionate that way, you can do it. Look, there's someone at our church in my discipleship group who has these flags. I think they were gifted to this person. And I have been trying for the past two years to get this person to bring these flags out and, like, do it. I won't say who it is, but it's Erica. Don't avoid emotion because you think it's, it's some kind of lower counterfeit level of spirituality. No. When you worship God properly, it certainly does affect your emotions. There's like this big conflict between thinker and feeler, you know? And, and people think that you have to be a thinker, like so you're not, uh, you're not uh, driven by your feelings all the time. There's, there's truth in that. But look, you should not lack the capacity to feel. God thinks. God feels. You ought to as well. Right? If you have feeling, if you're a feeler, you ought to be informed by the truth. If you are a thinker, you ought to train yourself to be compassionate and to be able to like, put yourself in someone else's shoes to understand what's going on, to truly reflect and express, and to connect with emotion. It's not a pick, pick thinking over feeling. It's do both and do them both well in spirit and in truth. Do not avoid emotion. And don't do it under some strange, self-righteous way of saying, like, oh, I just want to avoid the spiritual high. Which is really just a way of saying, I want to stay in the spiritual low. That's a terrible decision to make. Godly convictions are not neutral ideas. They involve the heart. You can and you must express your convictions emotionally. And yeah, you might think that's only for a moment, but I'm afraid that when I leave this retreat, get down this mountain, then my life will just crash and burn. Okay, then don't avoid the emotional expression. Set up some kind of accountability and follow through. That would be the right move to make. So if you're wondering whether or not you can feel the Holy Spirit speaking to you, Yes, you can feel it. Now, it's not going to be a voice in your head revealing some kind of new truth. It won't. It won't be some, some new teaching about God or God's will or God's plan, but it will be something that resonates with the truth of Scripture, applying something from God's Word to how you're feeling or what you're going through at that moment where something comes to mind. He brings to remembrance something that God has said to sustain you, to comfort you, to counsel you. It'll always be self-denying because the desires of the Spirit oppose the desires of the flesh. So it'll always be self-denying. It'll always be God-honoring because the Holy Spirit is God. 
and it'll always be reflective of God's character or God's promise or God's eternal will for his people. But yes, the Holy Spirit does speak. He doesn't speak new words. He speaks the words that have formed the New Testament and the Old Testament. And he brings that to remembrance in your mind to plant in you a deep conviction that you would live by. Not where you go, I don't know if it's the Spirit really saying this, but you say, I absolutely know the Spirit said this. Because men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write the Word of God. Our emotions are not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. And we worship Him as such. So we don't define Him. We don't fashion our own idea of who He is. We don't invent new ways to say that He works. We avoid the blasphemy of speaking wrongly of who the Holy Spirit is or what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. But we know that the Holy Spirit connects us, joins us to Christ and to each other. And He speaks to us the Scriptures and He comforts us in our weakness. We are to deny our sinful desires and follow His lead as He makes us more like Christ. As a concluding thought... Consider the words of Jesus. These are mysterious words because, you know, if you had a choice to live with Jesus or to live with the Holy Spirit, I feel like many of us would choose to live with Jesus, you know, like to have him here, right? But Jesus says something else. Look at chapter, John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, he's speaking to his apostles, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What a strange thing to say, that it's to our advantage that Jesus leaves and then the Holy Spirit comes. Why? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? He convicts, he regenerates, he justifies, he illuminates, he cleanses, he converts, he sanctifies, he adopts, he baptizes, he indwells, he endows, he empowers, he guides, he delivers, he produces fruit, and he secures us in the hand of God. This is what Scripture says. That is who he is and what he does. And what it doesn't say is that he knocks you down or makes you laugh in some silly way or amps up your body heat or gives you holy hiccups or gives you convulsions, puts you in some kind of a stupor, reveals new messages that he never talked about before in Scripture. The Old Testament already understood the Holy Spirit. King David in Psalm 51 understood who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the one who transforms our hearts. He writes Psalm 51 after being found by God guilty of murder and guilty of adultery. And he writes Psalm 51, and it's a prayer of repentance, and he knows what the Holy Spirit does. So look at Psalm 51, verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me 
the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That whole prayer is all stuff that God already promises. Okay, David is asking for things that God already promises. He'll transform you, renew you, create in you a clean heart. He'll never cast you away. The Holy Spirit will never be taken from you. He promises joy in your salvation and to uphold you. Fill your mind with that. Pray on that. Don't ignore it. That is where the Holy Spirit leads. Sense it. Feel it. And let that inform and fuel and empower your worship to know God for who He really is and what He really does. This is for every believer. It's not some next-level spiritual experience, and it's not just for people who speak in tongues. It is for everyone who believes. The Holy Spirit does not lead you to stupor or error. He leads you to Jesus, and He transforms you to be like Christ. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, how good it is to know that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. You are never far away. And you connect us to Jesus. We are never disconnected. And you are always leading us to be like Him. Help us to fill our minds with Scripture and to pray it out. to use our conscience to sense those holy desires and not, not ignore or defy or grieve or quench or resist them. To stay sober-minded and sharp and alert so that we're sensitive and aware of where the Spirit is speaking to us. And help us to test it so that we know that it's not a personal urge it's not a sinful urge, but it's one that produces the fruit of the Spirit that makes us more like Christ. May we practice this every day. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will be worshipped at this church, that we would acknowledge His presence and power and importance in our lives, that we would depend on Him so that we can properly worship you physically, mentally, spiritually, even emotionally. Help us to sense the Spirit and feel the Spirit to be convicted of sin, to be prompted to godliness, that we would be more like Christ and the work of the Spirit would be accomplished in us. All this we pray for Christ's glory in His name. Amen.